This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Dear kind, loving Father, I just want to thank you so much that we're all here in this room. And Father, we're ready to see and ready to witness your love and your character. And I pray that, Father, that um, your children will just see you, may know you more and better. Just hide me behind your cross, Father. I, I give you permission to just take me and hide me. And um, may you be lifted up in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Luke 15, 4, 5 really touched my heart these past few years. Um, it says, what man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth on his shoulders, rejoicing. I had a hard time my whole life thinking that God was a seeker of me. From a very... From the very beginning, I'm going to start from the very beginning, when I was in my mom's womb, my dad wanted me aborted. And so my uncles learned of this, that he you know, couldn't afford another mouth to feed. My dad um, was very pressured with finances when we were younger. And uh, so my uncles learned that. And so what they would try to do with my mom is try to make her fall or push her down the steps to, to lose me. And I had asked her at one point in my life, what were you feeling at the time? And she said, you know what? I felt rejected by your father. And I felt like he didn't want you. And it just dawned on me that most of my life, I felt that way, that I was not wanted, that I was rejected by my father. And what didn't help either was that my father favored, you know, the male gender. And that I grew up in a double standard, that men were superior to women. And so by growing up, I would put on my brother's clothing. I wanted to be a boy. I wanted to seek my dad's approval. But I felt like I wasn't going anywhere with that. And then I started to experience having sexual fantasies about women. And it was in these fantasies that I felt comforted. I escaped to this world of fantasy and, and dreamland of just being loved by another woman. You see, as I was growing up too, my mom had a struggle of depression. She was struggling as well. And so the moments of clarity, um, she, when she was very clear and present and focused, I clung to her. I clung to her tightly, but the moments where she was depressed, hurting, and her darkness, it devastated me because she was my safety. 
and I viewed my dad, I perceived my dad as being cold, strict. He would at times put me down and, you know, just call me stupid or, you know, and so I really believed him. And so I was building up my mindset of how men were. Well, if my brother and my father put me down, then all men will put me down. I began to have an inferiority complex over that. So as I was growing up, these fantasies never left me. Nine years old, I was in my dad's car, just the three of us, my brother, my sister, and I, in the back seat. My mom and dad are going to the grocery store, and we're just waiting for them. And I remember my mom told my, my dad, you have to get rid of your dirty magazines. I don't want any of the kids fi finding them. Well, guess what? <laughs> my dad put it in the trunk of his Buick Skylark. You know, these cars back then in the 80s where you can just reach over and there's a trunk. Well, anyway, my brother just reaches over and he just gives each one of us a copy. And I remember opening, opening this, this dirty magazine and just remembering the image that stuck in my mind that confirmed that what I was thinking and fantasizing about was okay. I'm like, huh, well, there it is. I'm okay. So my fantasies were fueled again by pornography and movies. I was addicted to movies so badly. Even, it didn't have to be porn. porn. It could be um, any romantic comedy or anything like that I was addicted to. And as I was growing up, these fantasies were more and more and more. And the more I was putting on a facade that I was pretending to like guys, to, get, to date guys, trying to cure myself of this thing, all the while growing up in the Seventh-day Adventist church, um, actually, I didn't grow up, actually, I didn't, wasn't born into the church. I was baptized, our whole family was baptized in 1985, um, came from a Catholic background. And um, it was at church that I felt really suppressed. I couldn't reach out. I felt alone, I felt isolated, I felt full of shame that if anyone found out my secret, that I would just be ostracized or just rejected. My fear was huge. And you know, the enemy likes for us to be in secrecy he wants us to believe that we're, we're the only ones going through something. And so in this secrecy, I started to have depression, but I masked it well. I said to myself, I actually vowed to myself, if I wasn't going to tell anyone I was a lesbian, I was going to lie about it, and I was going to lie good. So um, 
I even got into religious activities. I started to do outreach. I started to do the audiovisual. I started to work in the junior Sabbath school division. I was a teacher. All the while fantasizing about my sister in Christ. I would go home just feeling like a hypocrite, feeling dirty, just feeling like, how can God love me this way? But also angry that why God made me this way. There were moments where I just did not feel normal. I didn't feel right. All my friends liked boys. I didn't. I had crushes on women, teachers. And my fantasies were just growing more and more, and I was addicted to my thoughts. We can actually have a chemical that actually produces like heroin in our minds so to make us feel better. So that made me feel better. I would revert to my mind, escape from the real world, and there I was in my dreamland. Um, I finally went to a Christian college in Walla Walla College and was there for 10 months and was in this time that I really thought that God took away my tendencies, that I prayed really hard and said, Lord, take away my desire for this. I know this is not right, um, but unfortunately, I was rooming with my best friend. She was my best friend ever since I was eight years old. I was actually secretly in love with her. The temptations came back. I couldn't hold myself from fantasizing again. My depression got worse, that I couldn't go to classes. So my 10 months there was just practically heartbreaking. I was in secrecy again. I go back home, and I'm utterly pale, thin, and my mom just looks at me, she's like, Lisa, what happened with you over there? And I would just cry. I remember vacuuming my, my, my house and my mom, um, you know, she's in the kitchen and all of a sudden I just stopped vacuuming and I'm just breaking down. And she's like, what's the matter? I'm like, I don't know. Do you know when you lie so much? You actually believe that your lies, you don't even know what's true anymore? That was me. Like, I didn't know why I was crying. I was so depressed that my mom sent me to her doctor, and he, get, he prescribes me um, antidepressants. Well, I just take these antidepressants, and I just throw them away. And I just feel ashamed, like, how can I be broken? But God was tugging at my heart. Because one night I woke up, pacing up and down the hallways, like something was chasing me. Another night I woke up and I just heard myself growling. And I just heard a still small voice Tell me, Lisa, just give it to me. And I've lied so long, and I would just say, give what to you? What? 
So I'm going to fast forward a little bit. My lies caught up with me, and I decided that I couldn't lie anymore. I got on the internet, and of course, I found lesbian chat rooms and started to play out my fantasies online. I was cybersexing. I was talking to five or six women at a time until one got my attention. I thought I was actually falling in love with this woman who actually lives here in Florida. I was living in California at the time. So this is my full circle. <laughs> um, and so things started to progress between her and I. We would call each other all the time, um, chat all the time, and I decided this crazy thought that I'll just move all the way from California to Florida. So me and my sister, we pack up my little Honda Civic four-door and a little U-Haul attached on the back, and I was off. I was off to live my dream. But I felt a nudge. I felt a nudge from the Holy Spirit tell me, Lisa, you're going the wrong way. I kind of yelled back at that voice. And I said, no, it's my turn. I've tried, and I'm still this way. I don't care if I'm going to go to hell. I'm going to live this lifestyle. Thinking that I had pushed this voice, thinking that I had pushed God out of my life, he was still there. Praise God. Amen. So for three years, I'm living with my girlfriend, only discover that she couldn't even fill that God-shaped hole in my heart. That my addiction to porn was getting worse. I started to drink alcohol. I started to party on weekends. I started to uh, just lose myself. I joined the, the gay club scene. I, I did it all. All the while, my parents at this time still don't know about me. Only my sister and my brother. The time that I came out to my sister, uh, she was smoking a cigarette. And she already came out. She was already out and proud. And she had told my parents years ago that she was gay. And so when she came out of the closet, that just reverted me back into the closet even more. And I'm thinking, I can never tell now. So when I told her that I was gay, she had a cigarette in her. She, she was just blowing on that cigarette. She's just like, are you going to tell Ma? And I'm like, no way. 
I vowed to never tell my mom. Because, one, I was, I was a coward, yes. Two, she was going through so much in her life that I knew if, if I told her this, it would just devastate and break her heart. And so God's mercy held me back. So back to uh, Florida, I was here for three years, um, forgetting God, thinking that God didn't love me, thinking that I already sentenced myself to hell, but God was still nudging me. Something happened between me and her, and I decided to move back home with my parents. I wasn't making it financially. I was actually in debt and credit cards, trying to survive on my own and trying to prove that I can live on my own and just live out this lifestyle. So I'm on a plane back to live with my parents in Las Vegas, and I just feel my ankles just swell up. And I'm just worried. I'm just like, what if I have elephantitis? And I just blow up on this plane. I just get bigger and bigger. And, you know, I was crying, thinking, oh, wow, you know, this whole Florida thing just blew up my face. It wasn't what I expected. I'm a failure. And then all the while, my legs are, are just getting swollen and swollen. I'm just like, what is going on? So I arrive at Las Vegas. My mom, my mom and brother are so happy to greet me. He said, Lisa, you're here, you're here. And I'm just like, hi. And my mom's like, what's the matter? My, uh, my ankles are kind of uh, really thick and, and you know, and she, I just roll up my jeans and she's just like, it's okay, you're just tired. But I can tell she was really worried. So I get home and she has to peel off my pants. That's how bad the swelling got. To make a long story short, I was rushed to the hospital the next day. I had a fever of 104. I was in the hospital for two weeks with a team of doctors around me figuring out what I had. They finally conclude after so many tests, so many blood tests, and two blood transfusions after. They decided they came up with, I had systemic lupus. What is systemic lupus? Yes, it is an autoimmune disorder. And what it does, it attacks the body. It's actually a, the body's traitor. It, it attacks by inflammation, bones, skin, um, organs. And a study was made by Danny Vieira. He has said that autoimmune disease stems from or can stem from self-hatred, um, grief, depression, I hated myself all, all these years, and it finally caught up with me. So this sickness, God got my attention. 
and I was angry and I was feeling sorry for myself and I was thinking, I can't go in the sun like a lot of people. I can't um, do things like a lot of people. My joints are very stiff. I can't even bend down with my niece to play games with her um, anymore. Just these little things we take for granted. I was angry, but also grieving my past healthy life. God was working. And it was this time during this depression, I was writing so many sad and dark poetry and, and joining these poetry websites and, and just, you know, finding some kind of comfort and solace in that. And it was around this time my sister also was coming back to the Lord. And she would call us up and ask, do you guys remember the, you know, the Bible studies we took in 1985 as a family, the, the sanctuary? And we're just like baffled. I'm like, uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. And here are my, here's my sister, this loud and proud lesbian and living in San Francisco, and she's calling us about the sanctuary. My mom's like, what? Next thing happens, she calls and says, I, I'm, I'm going to quit smoking. We're like, what? <laughs> so things were happening with her, and at the same time, something was happening with me. I was sitting outside my mom and dad's backyard and just looking at the night sky. And this is when I found out I also had rheumatoid arthritis. And I was looking out at the night sky, and I was just like, what is this all about? Are you punishing me for what I did in Florida? I was just crying, trying to make sense of everything. And I felt that night that even though I didn't fervently pray, I didn't know how to pray, I really felt God's ear was there and he bent down to listen to me. I came in from being outside, and, and I just sat down with my dad, and lo and behold, he's watching this documentary on 2012. On, you know, the Mayan calendar, Nostradamus, and all this. Praise God, we're still here. It's 2014. Happy New Year. And it was just about the end time events, what's going to happen. It was very climactic. And... I said to him, you know, the great controversy probably has a lot to say about this stuff. And you know what happens? I opened it up, and there I started to read how Satan seeks to destroy and steal and kill us, but God gives life more abundantly. I know I'm not quoting that verbatim, but that's the gist. And how he whispers lies in our ears. And that he makes opportunities for us to fall. That he studied us from when we were little. And from that point on, God was taking me on a journey. And to make a long story short, me and my sister were getting so close spiritually. And we were just sharing with each other what God was doing in our life. And, and we were just like, wow, you know what? I, need to, I think I need to repent. Amen. You know, Vern, my sister woke me up in the middle of the night. Lisa, there was an earthquake. 
in Peru was like 7.9. And she's like, we got to pray. Three o'clock in the morning, we're praying. We're reading God's word, opening the great controversy. And then finally, when she made a decision to get rebaptized, she asked me, why don't you get rebaptized too? And I was thinking, I don't know. As I read a chapter in Desire of Ages on baptism, I had no reason not to. So here I was, sitting in the front pew. My mom is sitting right next to me. My sister's ex-girlfriend comes and her daughter. And there in the baptistry, I wanted to repent. I was crying my eyes out. I was saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I, there's so many things I need to repent. I, he's like, shh. You're mine. You've always been mine. You're getting married to me. Don't worry about all that. Because I wondered in my mind, Lord, how about that? How about me being gay? He's like, shh, you are mine. But you know, as I went down to the water and I died, myself wanted proof. I wanted proof that this was real, that I wasn't going through the emotions. So one morning, I was having devotion. I cracked open John 21, where Peter is walking along the shore with Jesus. And Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. The third time I heard Jesus say, Lisa, do you love me? It was at this time I, I couldn't help but kneel and repent. And he said, then go. Go tell your mom who you were. I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> so at the breakfast table, I, of course, I let my mom finish breakfast. I grab her hand. <laughs> I grab her hand and I just look. I'm already crying because I know what I'm going to do and what God has given me the strength to do, only from him. And I just grab her hand. Here's this 30-something-year-old woman about to tell her mom that she's been lying. So I grab her hand and I tell her, do you know who I was living with? And she just looked at me. She's like, was it with a man? I looked at her and I said, no, it was with a woman. She looked at me. She got it. She bent her head and she just cried. What did I do? Right away, I said to her, you didn't do anything. 
I brought her to my room and we were sobbing together, crying. And she goes, you know what, Lisa? I said, what? God is merciful because if you had told me years ago when Verna told me, I would have just thrown in the towel. I would have given up on God. God is merciful. And I said, he is, Ma. And you know what? I'm not that person anymore. I'm living for him now. Ever since then, God has been taking my desires. I had to look other ways, but the more time I spent with Jesus, things started to flay away. And it was by beholding his love that I'm a new creature. And one day I hope, if it's God's will, that maybe I'll find that special man. <laughs> but only in God's time and only his will be done. So I just want to encourage all of you, don't suffer in silence. God is able to do abundantly above all that we ask or think. Thank you. Okay, we're going to go into our next part. <clears throat> the Lost Father. Oh, it's kind of hard to follow after you, Lisa. Um, a very touching story. And a lot of times I don't think that we understand the power of pornography over men and women. I want to start with just a couple of uh, statistics. Every second, over $3,000 is spent on pornography. That's $11 million an hour. Every second, 28,000 people are viewing pornography. That's 102 million viewers every hour. The pornography industry is larger than the revenues of the top technology companies combined. That's combined. The pornography industry, oh, I'm sorry, the average age of first internet exposure is 11 years old. 15 to 17 year olds having multiple hardcore exposures, 80%. Eight to 16 year olds having viewed porn online, 90%, mostly while doing homework. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, we, we should all respond that way. According to the National Coalition for the Protection of Families and Children, among born-again Christian students, 48% are using pornography, and of that, 68% are using the campus equipment. I'll hold your seats. One in three users of pornography are women. And this is an old statistic. 70% of all men between 18 to 35, 34 view pornography on a monthly basis, and that is the age group of GYC. Brothers and sisters, is there an elephant in the room? Okay. I want to start off by telling you a story about a little girl. She grew up, she loved her mother and father, she was a Christian, her father was gone a lot. As a matter of fact, he got a better job, moved away. They left their church and their, and their friends. This little girl wasn't going to church anymore. And what happened is her father got another job, so he's working two jobs. 
She was desperate to be called a princess. She was desperate to be told by her father that she, he would protect her and that he would love her. So she grew up with this emptiness, and as she grew up, she became a, a young adult, and her body started to change. She got the attention of the boys, and she started to get that fulfillment from the boys in school that she deserved to get from her father. She ended up living on the streets, became a prostitute, and found that she could make a lot more money if she did movies. She ended up becoming a pornography star. Little boy, six years old, his parents were drug addicts. He was raised an Adventist, and his parents were de dealing drugs. They didn't do the drugs, they just sold them. So he was befriended by a neighborhood kid that was six years old that started to molest him. Then he grew up, and his parents got uh, arrested. They're in jail. So he's raised by his aunt. At his aunt's house, there was a 21-year-old man that snuck in his bedroom window, raped him when he was 13 years old, and he had to be taken to the hospital to be stitched up. The little boy, the 13-year-old boy, was sent to an Adventist reform school where he was molested by some of the staff members there. He now is cross-dressing, and praise the Lord, he started to reach out and to um, reach out to God, and he's on that path of coming back from all of that, but believes that he was born gay. And you can see the, the cycle of abuse that happened all because he wasn't getting the affirmation and the gender stamping from his father. Doesn't that make sense? 80% of homosexuals have been molested. My last story is about a young woman. Her father was addicted to pornography for many years. The wife knew it. Even the kids knew it. She knew that her father was powerless. He was a good front. You know, he even worked for the conference. So what happened is this girl knew that men were ineffective, that they were powerless. And so what happened is she hooked up with a guy that was a drug dealer. She got pregnant. She got pregnant again. They were living in a basement. And he's now in jail as attempted murder for trying to shoot somebody that was trying to take his drugs. So again, we have, we have society being broken down within Christianity even by the fact that we don't have fathers that we can love, that we don't have fathers that love us, that we don't have fathers that we can trust, or that we don't have a role model to show us what it's like to be a godly man. But we go through the motions, don't we? Luke 6.45 says, that a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil that is stored in his heart brings forth that which is evil. For whatever is in your heart, the mouth speaks. Mark 4.22, nothing is hidden, which will not be exposed, neither will anything be kept secret, but that it should come fully out. So we need a Savior, isn't that right? Because the secret things that we struggle with, they will come out. And they may not come out with you. They may come out with your children or your children's children. And we talked about that a little bit yesterday. John 5.37 talks about a secret God, right? Jesus said, In the Father himself who sent me, you've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. Well, that's not fair. Because you know what? I had an empty father, an absent father. I had a father who wasn't available to me. So you know what? I could probably relate to this kind of a God you know, very easily. But in Jeremiah 24, verse 7, it says, And I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. I didn't really understand this concept because, remember, the picture of a father that I had wasn't at all someone that would reveal himself to me, nor somebody that I could fully know. In Jeremiah 31, it says, For they shall all know me from the least unto the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their sins, and I will not remember their iniquities. 
in Steps to Christ, page 10, it says, The Word of God reveals His character. He Himself has declared His infinite love and pity. When Moses prayed, Show me your glory, the Lord answered, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. This was kind of surprising to me because there's a bit of a formula here. If you want to know what God's glory is, the answer is in this verse. It's His goodness. Isn't that sweet? But I didn't know how to relate to that. So when I got baptized as a Seventh-day Adventist, remember I had a boyfriend and a sexual addiction. And so I, I would think about myself in heaven. As I was walking with Jesus Christ, He was there for me. Remember, every time I fell, He, he said, get back up, I still want you. And I fell a lot. But I was testing Him. Is it true that you're really going to be there? Because you know what? No other man was there for me. My lovers all left me. They fooled around on me. My father was never available to me. The kids in school, they called me sissy, queer, fag. I got the message. And so sometimes I was actually in God's face and, and I would act out sexually and I would say, do you still want me, God? But I was testing him. But you know what? He was stable as a rock. He was my rock. And each and every time he said, come back, Mike, I still want you. Amen. And so I got that. Jesus was my savior, right? I couldn't relate to somebody that called himself my father. You know, because the father that I knew was abusive, neglectful, abandoning, right? And some of us in this room can probably identify with that too. And so when I imagine myself in heaven, I get it. Me and Jesus, we're going to sit by a, a lake or a stream and we're going to sing because you know Zephaniah 3.17 says he's going to rejoice over me with singing. And you're included in that if you'd like to be there. And so I could see myself sitting by a stream with Jesus. But, but when I think of God the Father, it's kind of like God would say, well, Jesus, go spend time with Mike, you know he gets on my nerves a little bit. Tell him I love him, tell him I love him, but, but go spend time with him. In seven years as walking as an Adventist Christian, that was the best picture that I got of God my Father, because that was the Father that I had. And so it wasn't until seven years, and you know what the, the number seven has to do with not perfection so much as it does completion. Mary Magdalene fell how many times? Oh, come on, you can do better than that. How many times did she fall? Thank you, seven times. She fell until it was completed, the work that Jesus Christ had to do with her. And so let me tell you, if you've been baptized for more than 10 minutes, you know that the power of the blood washes us clean and cleanses us from all unrighteousness, but you're still tempted and you still have the choice whether you're going to indulge your sin or not, right? Okay, so we know that this is a process. Walk with me through the process, brothers and sisters. Anyone who, who accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're going to be tested. It's a process, right? It's not an event, bing, where we're you know, hit with a magic wand over the head, and now you're straight, go date and mate and do everything else that we need to do. So after seven years of walking with Jesus Christ, I got who he was. He was there for me. He proved himself to me over and over and over again. I was intimately connected with Jesus Christ for the first time. I knew what it was like to love a man that wasn't sexualized. And so one day I read this verse and it was totally different to me. John 14, 9. Amen. He that has seen me has seen the Father. And this was revolutionary to me. As a 47-year-old man, imagine how shocking that was that I said, What? You mean he's like you? And that was profound for me. I didn't understand that because I didn't have the example. And so how can you expect me to trust a God who I picture as being arbitrary, judgmental, abusive, abandoning. And so many of you probably in this room have the same images of God. And I think that God takes that into account because he takes responsibility for everything that we've been put through. Isn't that fair? Yeah. Steps of Christ, page six says, Jesus, the tender, pitying Savior, was God 
manifest in the flesh. Another connection, that the goodness that you see in Jesus Christ is the goodness that God the Father has for you. And everything that's available through your Savior, it comes from your Father's hand. And this was really difficult for me to understand. John 8 verse 19 says, You don't know me or my Father. If you'd known me, you should also know my Father also. He's not talking to the world, he's talking to his people. And we as Seventh-day Adventists, I believe that this is where we go gravely wrong. Is we are fourth generation, fifth generation. Well, I'm so proud of you, but you know what? It's an individual experience that we're looking for, isn't that right? And so, you know, you can't ride on my experience, and I can't ride on your experience, and, and those five or six generations, they may help you out as far as hereditary sin if you knew who your father was. So I didn't understand this connection between God and the Father, and the only uh, comparison that I could make is probably twins, right? They're identical, they have the same DNA, and yet they're completely separate. Isn't that fair to say? So could we use that maybe as an example of what God the Father is and Jesus Christ. Look, there's twins over there. Second Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And here's where I think it starts to break down a little bit. This is, in my understanding, the gay puzzle. Because the puzzle piece that's missing is when we allow people to think that to hold on to their identity, their same-sex attraction, which I believe was manifested through neglect, through abuse, right? Through, through a disconnect from their gender identity, that what happens is you don't get to experience what true repentance feels like and the goodness of experiencing God's full, full and complete restoration for us. Jonah 4, and two, 4 verse 2 says, He is slow to anger and of great kindness, because God delights in mercy. <laughs> that was news for me. I didn't think that God delighted in anything about me. And so I want to share with you a story. And I'll need a um, volunteer. Okay. Come on up. She had her little hand up. All right, so, so if you would, I'm in this bathtub, right? And, and sometimes I, I get kind of carried away. I'm a hairdresser, so I think way outside the box. And so here, stand over here. Look at that, she's a silhouette. All right. So anyway, um, if you would, I'm having this meditation in my prayer. And a lot of times what I do is I don't just empty my mind because that's not cool, right? But Ellen White says that we should contemplate on the scenes of the cross for a thoughtful hour every day. I don't know that I fill that hour. But, but I'll, after I tell God what I need, I need this, 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 right? But anyone knows that in any relationship, a two-way conversation is what makes the relationship. Isn't that right? So when I'm done telling God what I need and making my list of my demands, I'll say, Lord, if you want to speak to me, I want to hear you. When was the last time that you asked God to speak to you? Today. Amen. And so... If you would, I'm in this bathtub, in this meditation. I start thinking about the cross, and for many times, I'll hang on to the cross myself, and, and, and I contemplate about that blood dripping down on me and cleansing me away from the, the thoughts that have smeared me the day before. And, and I know that I'm safe underneath that cross, and I hang on to it. So I get very visual. But one time, the Lord gave me this, this uh, picture, if you would. I wasn't asleep. It wasn't a dream. It was an actual meditation. And you know how, like, cowboys sit in a bathtub, you know, with the dust balls rolling around or whatever. And so I'm in this bathtub. And 
and I'm completely, uh, I don't even know where I am. And, and I've I'm, I'm got this fever and I'm delirious. And so on one side of this is Jesus, right? And he's washing my arm. Jesus is on one side of this bathtub and he's washing away my sin. Doesn't that make sense? I'm delirious with fever because I'm sick with sin, with the misunderstanding and, and, and what I've allowed men to take from me and the things that have been wielded to me by men. And Jesus is washing all of that away, right? On this one side of the tub. And so, thank you. And so as Jesus is washing away my sin, I struggle because I see that there's somebody else in this image and I want to know who's there. And, and so I, I start to look deeper in my meditation and I start to uh, withdraw or whatever away and I see that there's somebody on the other side of that bathtub and I look down and I see God my Father holding me up in that water because I'm so delirious I can't even hold myself up. I'm not aware of what's going on, but I have a hands-on Father. I have a Father that had never left me nor forsaken me, and while Jesus is washing away my sin, my Heavenly Father is holding me up in that water. We serve a personal God, and let me tell you something. If you struggle with your image of your Father, of your Heavenly Father, it makes sense that you may not feel safe to share with God everything that you're going through. Because you know what? Some of the things that are in our head are ugly. They're filthy and they're nasty. And we've cultivated them to a point where we love our sin. And sometimes it's very difficult to look at a holy God and say, I've been dirty again. Can you help me? John 5 verses 40 and 42 says, And you will not come to me that you might have life. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God loves us. Christ was the medium through which he could pour out his infinite love upon a fallen world. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And so Philippians 2 verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. But if you look at this verse, it says God was in Christ, and therefore, when I allow the mind of Christ to come inside my Carducci, I now have access to my Father. Amen. Amen. Steps of Christ, page 7, says, Nothing less than the infinite sacrifice made by Christ in behalf of fallen man could express the Father's love to lost humanity. What I want to speak to you about this morning is not just homosexuality, but about the broken and lost image of the Father, and the enemy has been very successful in stealing your right and your access to the Father away. Can anyone identify with what I'm saying this morning? Mark 7, verse 6 says, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And again, he's talking about the Israelites. He's talking about his own people. He's talking about us, Seventh-day Adventists, because you know what? We're fourth, we're fifth, we're sixth-generation Adventists, and we've been going through the motions without an experience. And God is desperate to be connected with us so that we can get legitimate healing, so we could wrap up the work and go home. There's a great need today of just such sincere, heartfelt repentance and confession. If we have not experienced that repentance and have not confessed our sin with true humiliation of soul and brokenness of spirit, here's the tough part, hating our iniquity, then we never truly were seeking for the forgiveness of our sins. Here's another piece of the gay puzzle. Because if we don't identify what sin is, if we continue to baptize it and bring it into our church, then I would be denied the right 
to have that repentance and that cleansing done that is so necessary for my relationship with my Father. I'm entitled to it, I deserve it, and it's unfair of us to deny people that right if we allow homosexuality into our church and say that it's accept acceptable when it goes against God's word. Isn't that right? Aren't we the people of the book? Don't we have an obligation to stand up for what the book means? But that we don't beat people over the head with that book. What we do is we show them what that is in a practical way that we live our lives. Because you know what? Whatever you struggle with, sister, I know it's heavy because I'm heavy too with what, I burden, what I'm burdened with. And can we walk together and can I help you see that through? Can we create a safe environment where, where I can help you and you can help me? And the next thing you know, we start glorifying God by the way that we live. And then the community sees that we've got something different than the other Christians have. It's not the Sabbath message that's going to make us distinctive. It's going to be the way that we experience the love of the Father and how we're able to give that to other people. The only reason why we may not have the remission of sins that are past is that we are not willing to humble our proud, proud hearts and comply with the conditions of the word of truth. We don't have that, that ability to redefine what God's Word says. His Word is true, but it's not, managed, it's not intended to be a sledgehammer over the head. It, it's an endearing call. It says, please, let this stuff go so that I can give you the healing, so I can reconcile you to me, so I can pour over you the love that you deserve, so that you won't need same-sex attraction, so you won't need pornography, so you won't need masturbation and, and all the hideous things that go with it, because God wants a people that are pure. 1 John 1.9 is the formula that still works for me, and I had, to miss, I had to totally rethink the way that I see this. You all know it. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from, for all, from all unrighteousness. But the only part that you have to play is the very first word, and if you understand this, incredible grace is already being delivered to you because the first word is if, and that's it, pure and simple. You have the right to choose. It's your choice. He'll respect it. No one's going to take that away from you. But if you confess your sins, He is faithful. He doesn't call you to be faithful. Your faithfulness is what He's giving to you. We're not faithful. And I can attest, I am not a faithful one. He is. It's His faithfulness that washes over us, forgives us. And then what does He do? The ultimate gift of all cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And somebody asked me last night, well, well what if I've got victory over my sin and then two weeks from now I fall? Well, the formula still applies. Because, you know, when Jesus washes us away from sin, we're clean. But what does he say in John? He says, now once you're clean, stay there. But you know what? We still have the right to choose. He hasn't taken that away. And when the decision comes up, if you find yourself slimed by what's out there in this world, you still have the opportunity to come to the throne of grace and to get that cleansing again. And you are clean. John chapter 17, verses 13 to 26 says, O righteous Father, the world has not known you. This is the greatest prayer, in my opinion, that was ever prayed. And if you just look at John chapter 17 and go through it, you'll find yourself probably weeping. It says, it says the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you have sent me. I've declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love that you have loved me with may be in them, and I in them. You know what? This was profound for me. This, this started to help me understand that the, that the connection between Jesus and the Father 
that I could understand it was through Jesus that I got the better picture of who God the Father was because I didn't get that example in this world. And you didn't get that either probably because the statistics are, are out there. And so you're entitled to it. He says that I'll show you exactly who I am, even though we don't see him, even though we can't see his shape, but you can know who he is by accepting his son as your savior. And this is how he helped to restore to me the lost image of who he really was. In ancient times, there was usually associated with the name father all the affection and tenderness that is now centered in the word mother. This is from Signs of the Times, March 29, 1905. When you pray, he said, say, Our Father which art in heaven, holy is your name. The word our expresses a sense of human brotherhood. We're linked together because we acknowledge him as our Father. And the word Father is that of childlike trust. And I think it's difficult for us to learn how to trust God the Father if we didn't have that example of a trustworthy Father. Steps of Christ, page 6, it's from the Father's heart that the streams of divine compassion manifest in Christ flow out to the children of men. Isn't that beautiful? It flows out to us. We're entitled to it. And this is life eternal. Here you go, another formula. I was talking to somebody last night. John 17, verse 3, this is it. It's encapsulated. If you want eternal life, it's telling you right now, this is the formula. If you follow this, you'll get it. This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There you go. If you want eternal life, get to know God. And I can't tell you enough the power that comes from allowing Jesus to show you who the Father is. And it doesn't come in any way that you may suspect. And for me, it took seven years. So isn't it fair to say that we're all struggling? We're in this process together. And isn't it fair? Can't I look at you and just say, I don't know where you are in your journey, but I'll stand right beside you and I'll see you all the way through. It's not enough to just dunk somebody that struggles with sexual sin and think that they're going to be okay. That's what community is. That's our obligation because you're now my brother and sister when I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, right? And so if you want to know how to redeem homosexuals, right? This is it. You start with relationships. You start by loving them. It's none of your business who they sleep with, but it is your obligation and responsibility to show them who Jesus Christ is. Doesn't that make sense? And so people say, well, what kind of Bible study do I give a homosexual? Give them a Bible study about the beauty of Christ. Show them how he loves them. Show them how he forgives their sins just like he forgave your sins, right? Show them what a sinner you are. How about that? Put yourself on the same level as somebody because you know what? We, we know what condescension looks like. Coming from homosexuality, we, we know what that feels like. And we can sense it like that. I want to read this to you in closing. Wow, God is good. If you would, you can close your eyes or you can look at the screen. And I haven't, I'm not going to say the, the Bible verses, but I want to read this to you. And I probably read it maybe six times before I stopped and I was just bawling, crying, because it's a love letter from God to you. And I want to read it to you as if it's a letter. And I want you to get the full embrace of what I believe God is trying to say to each one of us. It says, my child, you may not know me, but I know everything about you. I know when you sit down and when you rise up. I'm familiar with all your ways. Even the very hairs of your head are numbered because you were made in my image. In me you live and move and have your being because you are my offspring. 
I knew you even before you were conceived. I chose you when I planned creation. No, you were not a mistake, for all your days are written in my book. I determined the exact time of your birth and where you would live. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I knit you together in your mother's womb, and I brought you forth on the day that you were born. I have been misrepresented by those who don't know me. Isn't that profound? I'm not distant and angry, but I am the complete expression of love. And it is my desire to lavish my love on you, simply because you are my child and I am your father. I offer you more than your earthly father ever could because I am the perfect father. Every good gift that you receive comes from my hand because I'm your provider and I meet all your needs. My plan for your future has always been filled with hope because I love you with an everlasting love. My thoughts towards you are countless as the sand on the seashore and I rejoice over you with singing. I'll never stop doing good for you because you are my treasured possession. I desire to establish you with all my heart and all my soul and I want to show you great and marvelous things. If you'll seek me with all your heart, you will find me. Delight in me and I will give you the desires of your heart because it is I who gave you those desires. I'm able to do for you more than you could possibly imagine and my colleagues and I testify of that. For I am your greatest encourager. I am also the Father who comforts you in all your troubles because when you're brokenhearted, I'm close to you. As a shepherd carries a lamb, I have carried you close to my heart. One day I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. I'll take away all the pain that you have suffered on this earth. I'm your father and I love you even as I love my son Jesus. Because in Jesus my love for you is revealed. He is the exact representation of my being. He came to demonstrate that I'm for you, I'm not against you. And to tell you that I'm not counting your sins, Jesus died so that you and I could be reconciled. His death was the ultimate expression of my love for you. I gave up everything I loved so that I might gain your love. If you receive my gift, the gift of my son Jesus, then you receive me. And nothing will ever separate you from my love again. Come home. Come home and I'll throw the biggest party heaven has ever seen. I've always been father. I will always be father. But my question is, will you be my child? I'm waiting for you. So I want to talk to you personally for just a minute. If you want to know how to redeem sinners, because it's really not, again, about homosexuality, would you just raise your hand and let me know that maybe you misunderstood the Father's love? Is that fair? Would, you're in a safe place. You know, we've, we've shown you our underbellies. We've shown you everything that we're about. Has anyone misunderstood the Father's love? Okay. Can we admit that together? And then if we desire that, we know that God's not holding it back from us, right? The only thing that may hold us back is our unwillingness or our misunderstanding that we may not trust Him. 
And so would you be willing to stand with me in a, making a statement that I want to know God more. I want to be so filled with the Holy Spirit that I will come into contact with people who struggle, with people who are hurting, because I can testify that I've been hurting and that God has met my needs. And even if you don't fully understand that, if it's your desire today, would you just stand with me? You're not obligated. By standing, what you're doing is you're making an open profession to God above that you want to know Him intimately. You want that, that power working in your life. You want victory over your own issues so that you can take that plank out of your eye and help to meet the needs of somebody else who may be struggling. It doesn't work any other way that I've recognized. There's only one way. And if you're not receiving it, you're not going to be able to give it. And so by standing, you're testifying that I want that power working in my life. I want to experience the love of God so that I can give that to other people. So let us bow together as we pray. Father, it's no small thing what you have sacrificed for us. I didn't understand it for many years. My own bitterness, my own anger, my own resentments had separated me so far from you, Lord, that I couldn't even see who you were. Even as I was walking for seven years as an Adventist Christian, Lord, it evaded me and I didn't know how to understand it. But Lord, you sent your son because you knew that Mike Carducci and many others, Lord, who were broken by the things that they experienced in their life, the misunderstanding, the twisting of the rope, Lord, that had happened over years and years at a time when I wasn't even conscious that many of us have experienced, that, Lord, what it did is it made a huge disconnect, but you took responsibility. You made yourself obligated, Lord, to show us who you really were and to give us a way out, Lord. The choice is mine. And I, by standing with these people, Lord, we are letting you know that we've made a choice to follow you, Lord. And we know, Lord, that the only way that we can truly help somebody else out of that ditch, Lord, is if we're out of that ditch ourselves. Father, forgive us for not understanding that. But we want to thank you, Lord, that you've revealed to us through your Son exactly who you are, even though we can't see you. I believe, Lord, that on that day when you come to take us home, that, Lord, that we'll be able to behold your goodness in the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I believe, Lord, that the power that's already working in this room will continue to work, Lord, until you have wrapped up your work. And, Lord, we stand as a testimony that we're allowing you to use us. We now belong to Jesus Christ. And that was profound for me. I got it that you were my Savior. I got it that you were my Father. But I didn't realize, Lord, who I belonged to. And I can profess to you now that because I understand your love better, that I can give you my heart. I can open up to you all of my insecurities and all of the slime that has, has caused me to misunderstand so many things because you heal me, because you love me, and because you pour yourself out to me. And so Lord, as you have helped me and countless others, continue your work, I pray, until the day you take us home. And I pray, Lord, that your kingdom will be full because of the effort that you have given to us through your Son. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. 
GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.